Merry Christmas. Okay, uh, those of you who know me know that I am probably the least Christmassy guy you could ever meet. Uh, I almost never do anything to decorate my home. I actually had friends of mine come over last year to my home during uh, Advent season to decorate my house because they were a little annoyed that I wouldn't decorate my house myself. So it's interesting that I would say Merry Christmas, but I think it's important that I do. Because it's important that we have a Merry Christmas. It's not, excuse me here, but it's not because, you know, elves are important or that Santa Claus is important or that nice pretty lights that are set up around all over the place and, you know, on the boats out in Porty Grave are important. But what they represent is extremely important. Today, I'm beginning our series in the Advent season with uh, basically an expression of the hope we have in the gospel. Now, I have a cold today, so this may not go very long. I may, you know, kind of fall over in a fit of coughing. So if that happens, just, you know, understand that that's what's happening. I live in hope, though, that I will be able to finish this. I live in hope. Hope is the reason that Christmas is so important. Now, again, I I use that with an advised kind of trepidation here, because when we use the word hope in the modern world, we we use it as kind of a a placebo, a thing we we, we pretend is really, really there, but we, we know deep down that, you know, the hopes are, you know, better than average, not going to be fulfilled. You know, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Uh, I hope that the girl I like will be willing to go out with me. I hope that I'll be able to live without uh, addictions anymore. I hope that I will, ha- I will be able to not ever be depressed again. I hope, I hope, I hope. I hope that my spouse will uh, suddenly repent and stop doing the evil things that he or she is doing. I hope that my child will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and turn away from the things that are destroying them right now. I hope. And deep down we know that these hopes may not come to fruition. I mean, let's face it, the world is not in a great place. And if you are people who use social media, the social media reminds you over and over about how the world is not a great place. Outrage is something that we kind of use a lot, and hope, well, it seems less real. Christmas's message, Christmas's simple message that we must remember is that when our hope is in God, our hope is not only justified, it is true. Allow me to say that again. Our hope is not merely justified. It's true. We follow the story of Christmas because it's a true story. 
It is not merely a fond belief that has been passed down for generations and uh, we, as a fiction we pretend that it's true so that we can hopefully get through the dark times that, it, that we have in life. It does do that, by the way. It does actually get us through the dark times in life to understand the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Christmas reminds it, us that it's not just a story. It's true. And that's the interesting thing we have when we look into the Bible. And I, I apologize, some of what I say today in, as, as I exegete at, uh, Isaiah chapter nine is gonna be a little repetitive. You remember two weeks ago, I was in Micah chapter five similar issue. My, Isaiah and Micah live at roughly the same time period. You remember the time period I told you about, right? The Assyrian Empire, okay, well, let's go a little back a little bit further. Israel had been a unified kingdom. God had been worshipped in Jerusalem under three unified kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon died, his kingdom got split between the north and the south. Both pretended to follow God a little bit. They, they paid good lip service to God. But over time, they kept re rebelling against God, pretending that they were following him when they weren't. You know, dressing up really nice on Sunday mornings and making sure they got into church on time and made sure that nobody ever believed that they were struggling with anything and that they needed God more than anything else. No, instead they, they, they pretended to, play, to believe in God. And over time, God needed to punish them. So by the time of Isaiah and Micah, the entire northern kingdom had already been overrun. The Assyrian Empire had taken over town after town and city after city. And in Jerusalem, they're looking up and seeing their friends and family getting taken away and going off into exile in, in Assyria because that's the way the Assyrians worked. In order to avoid having rebellion in their areas, they kept moving people around so that they would never have anybody to oppose. They could never get together and, and, and get strong enough to oppose the Assyrian Empire. It's good for the Assyrians, not very good for any of their people they conquer. And the people of Israel watch as the Assyrian army comes closer and closer and closer. You can see the, by the way, this story in Second uh, Kings verses, uh, chapter 17 to about 19. It's an, it's an interesting section and I, I would actually recommend that you read it today. It's, it would be useful, beneficial to understand. And this is where we end chapter eight of Isaiah. Chapter eight, Isaiah, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, and the people of Israel are feeling it. The people of Jerusalem see it. It's really, really, really dark. 
It doesn't look like anything can work. It doesn't look like any hope that they have would, would work out. And it's into this situation, this is where we get the passage that we see in Isaiah chapter 9. By the way, it's following up after a, something that's said in Isaiah chapter 7. You know, behold, the virgin will be, born, will be with child. You will call his name Emmanuel. You remember that passage? It's important. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, two tribes of, of Judah, but, of Israel, sorry. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. But this looks delusional at the time that Isaiah is saying it. Sennacherib is very powerful. He has hundreds of thousands of soldiers. They've beaten everybody else. They could turn around to find somebody to help them to fight back the Assyrians, but there's nobody left. It looks really, really dark. I'm going to hold off on telling you the, the end of that story. I think if you remember the Micah sermon, you remember the end of this story. But we actually see this similar, same, this similar passage mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In both cases, we're talking about a prophecy of deliverance. There will come a time, there will be a place, there will be a, a situation where God is going to deliver his people. Whether you expect it or not, whether you think your hope is justified or not, God will deliver his people. Different in different situations. And honestly, part of it is not yet fulfilled. We'll deal with that in a moment. The prophecy of deliverance from the destruction that's to come. If you remember the story from uh, what I talked about in Micah, the Assyrian Empire actually never does take Jerusalem. The story in chapter 19 of 2 Kings is that God actually defeats the Assyrians directly. And they're forced to go home. Now, that doesn't mean that Israel lasted forever. They still went through the Babylonian exile, not the Assyrian exile. Because by the time they actually did go into exile, the Assyrians were no longer an empire. They'd been overcome by somebody else. At the time of Jesus, in the first century AD, 
the people of Israel were also living under oppression. The Maccabean, uh, the Maccabean revolt that had taken back the, the people, land of Israel and created what was called the Hasmonean Kingdom had been overthrown by the Romans. Basically, a dude named Herod wanted to become king, and so he got help from the Romans, and the Romans sent soldiers in as peacekeepers to keep the peace between the rival factions and had taken over the, taken over the throne. We saw Herod talked about a little bit earlier tonight, today, in the reading. The, the, the prophecy that we have here of the joy that's to come has a reason behind it. It says that there will be a time when uh, the, the people in darkness who've seen a great light, the man who dwelt, the, those who dwell in a, in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. There's a reason for it. In verse four, it begins with the word, three letters, four. That's a logical word. It's a logical progression we're seeing here. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Now again, in case you're interested, Midian is referring back to that uh, situation in the book of Judges where we talk about Gideon and Gideon overthrew the people of Midian who had been oppressing Israel with a couple of hundred dudes. He He over came an army of thousands by God just using him. As in the day of Midian. For every boat of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And of course, this was fulfilled in the time of Isaiah as the people, the, the armies of Sennacherib got overthrown and taken out. But they recognized, as we'll see in a few moments, that this wasn't the final prophecy, the final culmination of the prophecy that was then. It was just a foretaste. See, God does that. God doesn't just do what he's going to do. He keeps doing these things throughout history where he says, you know, I'm still here and I'm going to do this. I'm still going to fulfill what I said. We we like to forget this, but God is still active. He has been active always. He doesn't stop. He's God. And he fulfills his promises over and over and over again. And every time we are tempted to think that God has forsaken us and we can't possibly go on, God then says, hi, still here. And then does something glorious among his people. That's what he did in Isaiah. That's what he did uh, at Christmas. That's what he did on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he will do at his return. But you can understand, looking at verses 4 and 5, why the Jews of Jesus' time believed that the Messiah would be a political, political guy. I mean, it sounds like that, right? You, you, breaking the rod of the oppressor, trampling uh, garments rolled in blood, burned as fuel for the fire. Justice and righteousness will reign. You know, you, you, you can imagine that people would um, think that this is going to be a political fulfillment. 
I mean, we do this today, don't we? Every once in a while, we, we, we believe that the, the way that justice and righteousness would be fulfilled among us is that if everybody else did what we think is right. You've noticed this, right? Every time we think that something is going wrong, it's never our fault. It's those people over there that really just need to get, get on topic. It happens over and over and over again throughout history. And you can understand why it doesn't really work. Because, well, they're usually mutually exclusive. Like, for example, healthcare would be perfect if the government did more. That's what one group is saying. Immediately, and at exactly the same time, another group is over here saying, well, the healthcare system would work a heck of a lot better if the government just got out of the way. You realize those are mutually exclusive, right? And the fun part is, if you do the understanding to try and figure out what the arguments are and why the... the both of them have some benefits. There's merits to both sides. They make sense on both sides. But you see, the central problem is that the central deliverance that we need to get justice and righteousness to work, to get all of the systems in our, in our society to work properly, actually isn't outside of us, it's in us. The people at, at Jesus' time felt that the prophecy in Isaiah foretold a political Messiah who would fulfill all of the benefits because they had the same assumption that we do. All we need is the politics to be right. We're fine, but if the politics is right, everything will be, fun, will be okay. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird. It's the basis for both the anti-woke and the woke right now. Both groups honestly believe that the problem is the other side. And the Bible tells us that the problem is something different. Matthew 1.21. This is uh, the angel of God talking to Joseph, Joseph is the, you know, the uh, adopted father of Jesus. He's in a position where he's, he doesn't know what he's supposed to do because his girlfriend is pregnant and he didn't do it and she still claims to be a virgin. So he has no idea what he's supposed to do and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, uh, no, that's actually, this is actually a miracle, you're okay. But he says this to Joseph, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, uh, Yeshua, uh, same as uh, Joshua, the, the second book, the book after Exodus, Joshua, you know, where it, he's the one who talks, tells, who controls the land, of, uh, the land of Israel for the people. He takes it from the, from the people who owned it. It means will save or savior. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. You see, the deliverance that God is promising here is not merely a deliverance from the oppressors that we have. It's not merely dealing with the symptoms. I told you I have a cold, right? You, you guys have had colds before. Some, probably about a quarter of you have a cold right now. Some of you don't even know it yet. You know how colds work, right? You don't actually take things that cure your cold. 
because there's no cure for the common cold. People have been seeking that for centuries now and still have gotten no closer to it. No, we control the symptoms of a cold. I take enough NyQuil to knock me out every evening so I don't actually have to sneeze and cough all night. But it doesn't cure my cold. Jesus, or Messiah, sorry, spoiler alert there, The Savior that God sends, ultimately, promised in Isaiah, is not a Messiah who merely saves us from the surface issues. The the, the things that we recognize are bad, but are just symptoms of the evil we know. We think the problem is other people's oppression. The problem is that people want to oppress one another. We believe that the problem is that government over there that uh, doesn't listen to its people. But we know that we don't generally listen to people who disagree with us unless, unless, they, unless we want the, to get them on our side. We believe that the big problem that exists in the world is that other people do stuff that is wrong and terrible and evil. And God knows the real problem is we want to do stuff that's terrible and evil to one another. And I know most of us are probably thinking, yeah, that, that, that's true of that other guy next to me. It's not actually true of me. But I, I, I hate to break this to you. When Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked, who can understand it? He's talking to you and to me. You see, the coming king, the king that we see in Isaiah chapter 9, is a savior for, a total savior. He is not dealing with the symptoms of sin. He's the cure. Right now, all of the struggles that we have find their ultimate fulfillment and end in Jesus Christ. Right now, all of the things that we struggle with, all of the things that can keep us from God are taken care of in Jesus Christ. This is why Christians are kind of strange when we're right, when we're doing the right thing, we're kind of strange. I mean, oftentimes Christians act just like everybody else because we still deal with our own sin. But when we're, when we're right, Christians are really strange because they never say, I am the answer. You need to agree with me. We always say, or we should always say, look at Christ. Look to him. He is the fulfillment. He is the end of oppression. He is the coming eternal king. Remember Isaiah 9, 6 to 8. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. Now, it's interesting to see that last little verse there at the end because it's reminding the people of Israel that uh, actually this is going to ultimately happen, but immediately you will still face the problems. This prophecy is not a prophecy just for the people of Isaiah's time, as the people recognized. Because uh, it's this, this child is born is not merely a child that brings peace against the Assyrians. It's, uh, this prophesied child is not, the same, not necessarily the same child that would just be a sign for the, Assyri- the end of the Assyrian Empire. No, this child would be the, the well, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, if you see a observant Jew giving those names to someone other than God, you should take notice. This is why, by the way, we as Christians would believe that Jesus is God, because this is true. He is the wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He is God. But that doesn't mean the end is now. It means that the end will come. He will bring about true justice and true righteousness. It's not merely righteousness in the here and now. It's not merely the righteousness that will make us all, you know, feel vindicated about each other, but the true righteousness that would allow us to love one another as he calls us to. The, one, the type of righteousness and justice that would cure us of our heart condition, that moves us to go against God so easily. God will save. But I told you that the main reason that I think that this is important is because this stuff explains to us why we need to believe that Christmas is true. Not merely a justified belief in the goodness of the world, but actually true that God will work all things together. You see, this prophecy has had foretastes over and over and over again throughout history. As God reminds us that he rules and reigns over all things and that he will ultimately bring all things under submission to him in righteousness and justice. As I told you, Sedecarib never actually managed to get into Jerusalem. Though he believed that he was stronger than God, God pointed out, I'm sorry, I'm stronger, you're going home. 2,000 years ago, The Roman Empire said that they were more powerful than the gods of Israel, that they could rule over Israel. 2,000 years later, nobody worships the gods of Rome, and 
about a quarter of the world worships the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Today, we believe, uh, I read a statistic this week that there are now fewer uh, Christians in the minority, Christianity is now a minority religion in England and Wales. Uh, Less than half the population is Christian. We believe that, and here in St. John's, we see churches closing all the time. Several, we're, we're in a formerly closed church, and we moved from a formerly closed church to this one. We can imagine that God has forgotten us, that God is on the wane, or that the culture will eventually go against God ultimately. I, I will point out that this is, we have been here before, it is possible that we'll, see, that we'll see the light of Christianity go out in, in the West. But that does not mean that God will be, will be defeated, because God can't be defeated. He's God. And over and over again, God has revealed himself and shown himself to be true. 4,000 years, well, 2,700 years ago, when the people of Israel were afraid of Sennacherib, God redeemed them and saved them. 2,000 years ago, when the people of Israel felt that they needed a savior to save them from political Rome, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and defeated the Roman Empire by converting it to love for God. And brothers and sisters, the prophecy is not over yet. You see, this prophecy has not finished. It says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And of peace, there will be no end. He will be over this kingdom for this time forth and forevermore. That hasn't ended, brothers and sisters. Sure, we live in a time right now where people will imagine that we still live in darkness, we still have problems around us, but God, who has been faithful over and over again throughout history, will be faithful again. You see, that's the application. Like the people in Isaiah's time and the people in Micah's time, as I talked about two weeks ago, we live in a time when God's control is not easily apparent. Uh, we, still, we still suffer. Like Sennacherib in 2 Kings, people say, where is his coming? They also say it in 2 Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. The reason that we believe in Christmas, the reason that we go through all of these things, the reason that we have these physical reminders of the joy of God before us is not so that we can have really good presents on Christmas, Christmas Day. It's not merely so that we can have a, t- a, d- a couple of days of joy. It's so that we can be reminded that the God on whom this joy is based is faithful and true. And as he has fulfilled his promises in the past, 
He will continue to. So brothers and sisters, this Christmas season, as we say Merry Christmas to one another and to those around us, may we mean it in the way that Christians mean it. To preach again that God's promises are true and they will find their fulfillment. We rejoice in a God who keeps his promises. We remember his promises kept in the past so that we can see his promises will be kept in the future. Let's pray. Lord God, you are greater than anything that we can ever imagine. And now as we turn to, again, another reminder of the fulfillment of your promises in communion. We pray that you would be foremost in our affections and that ultimately we would remember that your your promises are true and that we don't need to live in fear or in doubt, but instead simply trust in you. Let's pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.